0: If you're new to hunting, I think one thing that like really makes people not as successful is like a constant act of self-guessing. I, I kind of say that I have in some ways like happy feet. I like to cruise around, I like to move around a lot. If you're bad at glassing and you don't like glassing, develop tactics that you can be successful at without glassing. I had one guy like who sent sending me a message that I absolutely didn't know how to hunt because I was carrying a backpack around that had all my scent in it this point I've actually spent more days out hunting than not hunting. It was just pretty crazy to think. This is Remy Warren and you're listening to the Wild Initiative.
1: Put down your latte and pull on your boots.
2: There's a lot of people that can pull the trigger on an animal but they don't know what to do with it after. If you would have told me that a stupid turkey was going to make me get that excited I'd have told you you were crazy. It's
1: just a skill that you have to perfect over a lot of years. Hunting is a tribal activity. We've lost the tribe. We can't even
3: hunt together anymore. Well, the people that are anti-hunting are usually pro-abortion. So kill the
2: people, save the animals. I just remember riding my horse back to camp with the Northern Lights and the moose behind me, and I'm like, this is why I've done this. This is as cool as an experience as I will get.
1: Hi, this is Jim Shockey. This is Sam Soholt, the public land bus guy.
0: Hi, I'm Kimmy Greentree.
2: Hi, this is South Cox with the Western Hunter Podcast. Hey, this is Ben Detamonky, a.k.a. Shed Crazy. You're listening to The Wild Initiative. Hey, y'all, welcome to another episode of The Wild Initiative, brought to you as part of the Waypoint Outdoor Collective. Midway USA
3: brand product designers have one straightforward goal.
2: All right, so getting on to today's episode, I am super excited to have the one and only Remy Warren on the show. Uh, Remy is just a super, super smart dude when it comes to this world of hunting. He's done a little bit of everything. Um, And so I'm excited to have him on and hear his story. Remy, thanks so much for joining me today.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It's good to get a chance to sit down and talk for a little bit. Heck yeah.
2: So uh, you know, we got a chance to just sit for a moment at Western Hunting Summit. Uh was awesome event. It was really great to uh meet you out there and uh hear what you had to say about mule deer hunting. But I'm excited to come in and actually just learn a little bit more about you. So I would honestly love if you could start out just with a little bit about yourself and how did you get started in hunting and the outdoors? Where did you what, what kicked it off for you?
0: I mean, I, I kind of like grew up hunting and in the outdoors, my dad hunted. Um, so I would just kind of go out with him. And I mean, I, I, I can't even remember a time that I didn't love hunting or didn't want to go hunting. I mean, I, there's pictures of me just like as a toddler with a toy gun, like following my dad around You <laughs> while he's hunting sage hen or whatever, getting to carry his birds and other things. Um, you know, it's just something I, I just grew up with and really fell in love with. Um, And it's just, for me, it's like, it's just kind of like part of my life, something that I've always like just been super passionate about. And And even though my dad got me into hunting, you know, I kind of, I was the type that I just like, I loved it so much. Kind of, I kind of took it to that next level and then even brought him along with me, you know, he, he was more, he enjoyed hunting, but. I don't think it, he was as passionate about it as I was. And then he saw that passion and he got more excited. It was something that we could do together. And, um, you know, kind of like I kind of started pushing him to hunt more, which is cool too. And, and yeah, so I think that that's pretty much
2: how I got started like growing up in it really. So did you ever, I hear from a, a lot of guys, the guys that kind of grew up in the hunting, they went through these waves where maybe they went through like college or high school and just completely fell out of it. Did you ever go through any of that? Or has it always just been like train never went off the tracks? It was always hunting.
0: Oh yeah. No, the train never went off the tracks. Like it's all I've thought about since I've had like coherent thoughts, <laughs> which is good because people, you know, like people ask like, Oh, do you get sick of it? Like it's work. And you know, like as a guide and whatever, I mean, the most days I spent in the field in one year, Obviously before I was married, but um like three hundred and twenty-three days. That was as many that was like <laughs> the days that I was out in in a single year of hunting or guy like in some facet of like being out hunting. And um and I didn't I never got sick of it. Like it wasn't it's just something that I can get up and do every single day. Um which is awesome. Like it's 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 a true the truest passion that I can think of. And um and it's something that I never like you know, I never was really into anything else. Now, now I'm like, I'll do other things, but I still just only think eat, breathe, sleep, hunting and <laughs> fishing, you know, fishing as well, but um, outdoor stuff mostly.
2: So you grew up hunting, uh, you went and then you, you started up a guide service. How old were you when you started guiding?
0: Um, it was shortly after high school. Um, I kind of like, after I graduated high school, I just started taking all my college classes in the spring and summer semesters. And that gave me August through, what would it be like January, um, off to like essentially hunt work, whatever. So I kind of took that, that entire fall season off and, um, kind of started guiding in Montana. I like went up to Montana and got a guiding job there and started guiding, uh, elk and deer kind of general unit combo hunts. And then that kind of, you know, as that kind of progressed, I kind of got jobs other places, uh, South Dakota, New Mexico, um, and then eventually i I've guided in South Africa and New Zealand, so kind of like all over the world um done some of the guiding and stuff in in a lot of different states and a lot of different places but um I just I, I pretty much just started kind of like after high school, and then I would take that money that I made during the guiding season, and then I would just go to school the rest of the year and kind of live off my guide salary for the the rest of the year, so it was pretty cool it was a it was a great. Way to do it for
2: sure. Jesus, funny, you know. I think about you know. We talked a little bit earlier, and I kind of mentioned this is a fairly new thing to me over the past few years. And uh, I just i I look back and I think about what I was doing in college, and, <laughs> and I'm like, oh man, if only I'd known about this world. Like, I just didn't even. I don't know. It was just never even a thought to me back in my back in my twenties, and uh, we won't discuss. Oh, uh, the stuff I was doing back then, but, uh, <laughs> it's a very, very different world. Um, so it's just, it's such an interesting thing, like hearing that and, you know, hearing about you just hunting all, you know, all over the United States. If, I mean, if you were to guess how many, how many of the, uh, our States would you say you've hunted in,
0: um, <clears throat> I don't know. I think, I mean, almost all the Western states, whether guiding or hunting myself or some form of something. Um, Yeah. I think I've, I've, I mean, I've held tags in pretty much all the States out West, but um, yeah, you know, I mean like the guiding season does it, you know, it's funny because I do, I do like, I actually still guide. Um, And it's something that I do love to do. And that does like, it's like, okay, well that season, you know, prevents you from going other places. I guide in Montana during the fall, um, from like September through November. And so like any hunts outside of that September through November season are either like weekend hunts around there or whatever. So that, that does slow down the hunting other places outside, like in certain seasons. But, um, for the most part, like my personal hunts, I try to do in that August um you know find a little bit of time in september and then there's like a week in october um but i've i've hunted a lot of the western states now outside of the western states there's like a couple places i kind of like oklahoma or texas or whatever but um you know like most most of the like unite us hunting that i do is western big game based
2: so it's funny you know you talk about the you're still out there guiding and i think it's it's kind of funny cuz there is a I've talked with a lot of awesome people on this podcast and I think there's this perception of, you know, I mean, for lack of a better term, and you may cringe when I say this, but you are, I think you would be considered a somewhat of a celebrity hunter. Like people know you, you have a lot of media out there. And I think there's a concept of like, okay, well, you know, that's all you do. You know, you've uh, like, all you do is you go out and hunt and you don't do anything else. And that's like, your whole livelihood and and that is making these awesome films and and you know tv shows and podcasts and but no you do other things you go out and guide and you make a living that way and it's it's just an interesting thing i think where people's mindsets are when they watch you on a tv show or or listen to you on a podcast they're like oh this guy that's all he does is is go out and hunt and that's his entire living for the year like
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think too, like part of it for me, like, I really, I I love the aspect of guiding because it's like, it really is kind of like, I think one of the highest forms of just like knowing what you're doing Um, to be able to take somebody that might not know what they're doing and make them successful in uh, in a situation that might be hard to be successful in and regularly. Like it's, it can be very difficult. And so I think that like, it's a way that always tests my skills. Um, And you know, it's like, I mean, I built, it, it was like, I worked really hard to, to get my own outfitting license. Like I, I worked through college and like built a name and a reputation for being a good guide. And then when I was, I think I was 22 years old when I bought um, like started my own business and had to like buy out another outfitter. And um, you know, I used the money that I'd saved up over the five years of like working or whatever to like, help start that business. And and it was like, man, my blood, sweat and tears went into it. You know, I built like a pretty sweet lodge cabin like that we built ourselves. And so it was like, you know, a lot of my life went into getting to that point. And I don't think it's it's something that I really ever give up. Um, Also, I think it just like, you know, it gives me I feel like I get a little bit of street cred while I still guide, you know, I feel like the day that I give that up. like soft i'm like you know it's like just kind of a, it's a mental thing for me too where it's like yeah i could probably go do other stuff but um something that i love to do now I, I talk about it but also you know people are always like oh he's a guide i want to go hunt with him i'm not like we don't have like a it's it's just me and like a couple other guy i have other guides that work for me but it's a pretty small operation like we you know like we have repeat clients that have hunted with me some of these guys have hunted with me for 11 12 years like before i was doing any of this media stuff or anything like that like you know so it's actually kind of almost impossible to get a spot on our montana hunts but yeah i always try to throw that out there because otherwise i get a lot of like messages and stuff and i'm like and i can't answer them all because it's just me it's not like i have a bunch of people sitting there answering all the emails and doing all the other stuff so (laughs) Yeah. I always, I always have that caveat out there that, yeah, I I do guide, but the odds of me guiding you are very, very small only because there's a limited amount of spots and those limited amount of spots are normally already full. So.
2: Well, and I think some people probably also are reaching out like with this, I don't know, this kind of expectation I can imagine where it's, it's going to be a TV show if they go like, it'll be just like a TV show if they go out with you and it's going to be like you and them on top of the mountain. And like, it's going to be this, I don't know, very dramatic sort of a thing and there's going to be cameras or something. Yeah. I, I don't know. I feel like somewhere the people that are reaching out in the back of their head, you're, they're getting that, that like glorious grand expectation. And it's like, ah, oh, so probably just going to be like any, any guided trip. like. Yeah. <laughs> Like any guided trip, but way better. <laughs> yes. Yes. Because, uh, <laughs> not to say, yeah, not to say that your outfit is just like any other guided outfit, <laughs> but yeah. So, um, one, I did have, uh, some people reach out and, you know, we did just come off this Western Hun- hunting summit, mule deer summit. And, I personally am about to, I've got two big hunts planned this year. I'm going down for Arizona elk. And I also drew, uh, I'm going to go do some over the counter mule deer and, um, muley I've always been really, really passionate about elk, but mule deer has always had a special place in my heart cause it's the first tag I ever filled. And so I get really, really excited for these over the counter public land hunts and I did have, I, you know, I've got a few questions and I did have a few folks reach out with a few of their questions about mule deer. So if maybe we could, uh, go through a few of these and see where it, where it ends up taking us. One of the big things, uh, I had somebody ask me is, uh, you know, and I know you uh, spend most of your time kind of on, uh, the, the Western States mountain hunts, but I had somebody uh, reach out and, all the advice they end up getting tends to be on uh, mountain mule deer, like high country, uh, high country mule deer. They were uh, asking, how do you see tips and tactics differ when it comes to mule deer in more like the plains or sandhill locations or maybe desert locations versus kind of the, the cooler Alpine locations.
0: Yeah. I mean, the tactics are, are actually very, very similar. Um, you know, like it, it really depends the type of topography that you have. Like if you don't have a lot of topography where you can glass, like from, from a distance, then your tactics are going to be more like, I would just call it like roving where you're moving into places that you can like coulee to coulee, Canyon to Canyon and glassing and looking for those things that those deer might be like concentrating around at a certain time. So um you know like also one thing that you kind of have to think about with anything you're hunting is like you, you need to find the thing that's rare that they need so if you're out in like sand hills well you know deer are going to need shade to bed and there's not a lot of trees and some of that more open and plain stuff so you're going to have to find those spots where they can get shade and bed and that's really going to limit the amount of plate like there's a lot that starts to narrow down the land those deer are going to be so you know it's like okay well only a certain side of the hill is going to get shade in the middle of the day maybe there's some juniper trees or cedars in this certain canyon you know they're going to need that shade maybe they're just bedding underneath a ledge or something like that so pinpointing where those shade areas are going to be and you've got a really hot spot for where they're going to go after they feed and where they're going to bed at um you know same thing in like desert you know if you're in a real desert arid area maybe it's flat and you can't really glass a lot tall sage you might not be able to see a lot of the deer but you go well what's missing what do they need maybe there's not a lot of water there so you can go find a tank or uh or something something that's going to concentrate the deer and that's really going to just focus like focus your attention on the something that's vital to the deer but maybe a more rare resource or something that you can easily pinpoint. And that's how you just pinpoint those deer. So the same applies and actually makes it easier. I, I think it's easier than like hunting some more big mountain stuff where, you know, maybe the entire area has everything that they need. So how do you decipher where they're going to be there is a little bit more difficult than some of these areas where, you know, you've got a lot of feed, but you've got like limited shade. So you can kind of focus in on, particular spots. And I think that that really helps when I go to areas that are a little
2: bit different. Yeah. It's, it's funny you bring that up. Cause I, I actually experienced that a lot over this past year because I'm, I always buy that. You know, I mentioned I'm doing it this year. I, I always buy that over the counter archery tag for Arizona for, for deer. Cause I'm always putting in for Arizona. I already have the license. Might as well buy fairly inexpensive tag that's great for a long period of time. And so I go down there and that's kind of where I got my hands-on learning experience for hunting mule deer. You know, I've I've listened to podcast more podcasts than probably just about anyone. I've watched countless YouTube videos. I'm a researcher, so I've done it. But hands-on experience it has been down in Arizona. So I learned that that kind of technique where it's okay, you, like you said, you got to find what is missing. And so you get in, you find the water, you find the shade, whatever that may be. And you can really pinpoint glassing areas. And then this last year I was in Montana and all of that was hugely abundant. (laughs) And I just felt so overwhelmed. I was like, I don't even, I don't even know where to start. It's like, it, there's so mo- so many places they can be like, you know, so you, you pick up, uh, you know, how would those tactics like now I'm coming at it from the opposite direction. I'm you I'm used to being able to like, look for those little locations to glass up something. How would those tactics differ then? in maybe like a place like Montana or Idaho where, you know, you're looking at a hillside and you're like, okay, well, yeah, there's pretty prolific opportunity for these mule deer here. Do you just grid it out at that point? Like, uh, you know, where do your techniques fall then?
0: Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's just more of like, yeah, you got to get boots on the ground and really just start looking for the animals. I mean, um, I kind of like, when I start looking, I look at for like certain at certain places first, you know, because there are, I mean, there's places that you will go that look great. I mean, I can think of like a couple off the top of my head that I'm like, okay, it's this amazing, like big burn, everything animals need, and you'll never see anything there, maybe occasionally. And it's not that I still don't look all the time just to prove, like it just looks so good, (laughs) and yet you never see anything there. And on this one other hillside, you always see deer. So, you know, it's like 99% of the good deer country is going to hold zero deer. It's all just going to be, or I'll say 90%, you know, all the deer, hundred percent of the deer are living in 10% of the terrain. And maybe there's not a lot of significant difference, but there is something different about it. So what you do is you kind of like figure out, okay, once you start finding deer, where was it, you know, like make mental notes and then find things that are very similar in other places. And that includes like, look at a topo map and like where those deer are hanging out, what's the topography look like? What direction is that? hill facing like there's something about it that they like and maybe it's just for that certain time year or whatever but then you go replicate that other places and i've had a lot of luck doing that even just using like a topo map like maybe i'll be hunting in a spot in nevada and i like find a bunch of deer in this pocket i look at the topo map and then i go and find maybe even in a different unit or a different state i can use that kind of like basic topography to kind of start my search. So I just kind of like have this catalog of like experience and where I'm seeing things and what it looks like, and then find those places, other places. And over time you get really good at doing that. But it's one thing that's like, I can tell you what I look for, but you also kind of have to have that like basis of the way you hunt and where you actually find animals, you know, and build your own, like out of experience, I would say database on where you're going to start looking and that might be different than the places that I like to hunt or start to look but it could still be successful so that's what I do and if I go into a new area and I start finding deer you know then I start kind of looking at those similar areas now if I like maybe I'm in an area and I'm in the maybe I am in the it's like early season and I'm like down low and I'm seeing 100 deer but no bucks well I call that a nursery and it's like well maybe there's something about this region that attracts the does Now I got to go find another area where I start seeing bucks and then kind of separate out those types of areas. But it really just helps you build and focus on where to go because it can just be this huge swath of land. But the nice thing about that is, you know, maybe in that you find a spot that somebody else isn't going to find. And it's really weird what you might kind of discover doing that. Like a few years back, um, there's this one place that I kind of, I was like September, Montana. Um, big mountain and you go, okay, like, look everywhere. And there's places I never see deer. And then there's this one canyon where I can always see deer in September. And so I just started, you know, like I actually had a hunter with me and I'm like, okay, there's going to be deer in this canyon. And they're like, what? Yeah. And we sit down, look, and there's 20 bucks in there. And you're like, okay, that's crazy. But I start watching those bucks and they start like that time of year, they were just like feeding on this elderberry bush. And that really got me thinking like, okay, maybe that's like deer crack and I should go find other, that was the only place on that mountain that had elderberries. Maybe I'll go find another spot that has those this time here. And sure enough, started picking up bucks in those. It was like a more wet area on a certain hill that had a certain type of thing that I never even know knew deer liked. So it's just like something like that can just be a little bit of a edge when you start looking for, for deer or whatever.
2: Well, it's kind of like, I mean, to simplify all that, it's, I mean, you have to find deer, you know, you, you do your best. Once you find deer, you look at that area and you know, you list out, okay, these are all the different qualities of that area. Then you look for similar stuff. You look for that in a different place. You list out all the qualities of that area and you can kind of start to cross-reference and narrow down what those may be. You know, you got maybe 10 qualities, whether it's, Vegetation, topo, water, uh, all of these different qualities, and you can start to then narrow those down to the key pieces and really see what, what the most important portions for those. And like you said, then you can apply that to other hunts, other states, and it gives you a starting point. So you're not just jumping in completely fresh to every hunt.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, as things change, you know, like if you go down to Arizona, what the deer are looking for there are completely different than what the deer are looking for in Northwest Montana. You know, it's like (laughs) deer in Northwest Montana have plenty of cover; They've got plenty, you know what I mean? They're looking for maybe some more open and maybe some drier stuff. Whereas in Arizona, maybe they're looking for some water and some like succulent good food, and whatever, you know, there's just, so many different things that they're looking for in different places. But yeah, just filling out that catalog and just understanding it's just like anything, you know, finding what's rare but valuable to the deer. And that's kind of how you can narrow down
2: your search. Do you actually keep like a f- physical notebook of, of things when you're in the field? Um,
0: I used to, but
2: I, and it was funny cause
0: I was actually just like reading through some of the stuff the other day. And I mean, it's like stuff that I've like, trips or days or whatever like i forgot a lot of stuff unfortunately but um i don't anymore i mean now like i just it's like i have so much of that data over the years i mean you know i i've spent like literally thousands of days in the field hunting i mean at this point i've actually spent more days out hunting than not hunting which is it was just pretty crazy to think like (laughs) i've spent the majority of my life now at this point out side chasing animals and i mean that's i'm not saying that's like brag or like whatever but it just gives you an idea of like that's how committed i am to this um you know i mean i found ways to guide in other countries and do uh, and hunt other places kind of year-round and so you know like it, it that's given me an edge on just understanding and building up like kind of that database of some of it too, you kind of just like, you start to, you, I mean, as long as you're like actively hunting and thinking about things, you kind of like start to get a feeling of what feels good. And that, and that just kind of comes with experience as well as, you know, maybe you don't even have any experience. Maybe it's just, you you know, you've got a good feeling about this Canyon. There's probably a reason you do. So I kind of, I do, I do follow that a lot as well. Like I just kind of let my instincts guide me in some ways.
2: Well, so much of what, you know, I'm sure it's like, back in the day you had to consciously be reminded of it, but now it's so ingrained and that's why you can trust those, those like hunches about a Canyon or something. You may be almost subconsciously picking something up. You may be looking at it and, and it may be tripping something that they you're not sitting there thinking super consciously about, but it's tripping some memory or some experience you had prior. And, and that's, what's really keying you in on that spot. And, um, And that's something that, yeah, only comes with thousands of days in the field. You know, when you're, when you've only been hunting for a couple of years, uh, it's still going to take you a while to develop that.
0: Yeah, I do. I will say though, like if you're new to hunting, you know, I think one thing that like really, really, um, makes people not as successful is like a constant act of self guessing. You just have to like, And, and actually that's one of the reasons I really enjoy hunting alone is because when you're with other people, you're always like bouncing ideas back and forth and you're going, you're actually like thinking slower and like, you know, feeling less. Like you're just the act of hunting is, is more like broken down into an an analysis. And I mean, yeah, I'm talking about tactics and the way that analyze things, but also you can like really hinder your success by just overanalyzing things. You just sometimes have to be like, yeah, I feel like there's going to be a big buck in here. And, and when you feel like there's going to be a big buck in there, then you're looking to prove yourself right. As opposed to, I don't think there's anything in here. And then you're going to kind of like your mind like has a different set of focus. And I see that happen a lot with people that are new. Like they feel like they don't know what they're doing. So they kind of like keep bouncing around. They don't spend, maybe, they don't look in as hard as they might hear because they think that they should be over there. And it's like this constant, like thinking and moving and changing and doing different which is okay. But, um, you know, sometimes it's good to just stay focused on something and, and you end up being successful that way. Like your mind is focused more on the positive portion of what might happen. And then you kind of like make it happen in some, in some instances, I guess.
2: Well, you know, it's, it's an interesting concept because there's so much truth to like your mind your mind creating your reality to some to some extent you know and there's there's a lot of people that take that way overboard and you know manifesting your own destiny, all this stuff, but there is a huge amount of truth in that you know what you think becomes reality to some extent you do create you know create your own destiny, whatever you want to call that but yeah, like uh, yeah I mean you gave a great il- illustration of that where you know if you are if you have told yourself and convinced yourself that there's a buck or there's a bull in this Canyon, you are going to check every single possible spot that they could be even a few spots. They probably couldn't, couldn't be logically. You'll, you will stay there longer. You will find it. And because of that, you will probably find something in there. Um, versus again, there may be a spot that's, that has several elk in it, but, or several deer in it, but you convince yourself that there's nothing in there you're going to just check the few most obvious spots and probably miss quite a bit. And so it's, I think that's such an important, you know, creating, creating your own hunting reality, if you will, yeah. with your thoughts and decisions. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I, I'm
0: everyone's guilty of it, but I do notice that like over time when I'm like go to a spot, I'm like, I should go, maybe I should go over to that other side of the mountain. Like that looked good too. Oh, this looks good. I don't see anything yeah probably the other sides where I should have been, and then like you waste your time like not focusing in on where you're at while you're there and and I know that's like, okay, maybe if you just sit down and say, this is where I'm at, I'm gonna just like work this until later and then I can go check that tomorrow, whatever, but right now I'm here, I'm gonna hunt this and or I'm gonna you know make this route and do that thing and just stay focused in that like I'm not saying that you get into a spot that has nothing and you just you beat it to death because I definitely am the type that moves on a lot. Like I get somewhere, I sit down, I go ask, if I don't see what I'm looking for, I I generally go, but I know what I'm looking for, you know? So, um, I think that's a little bit harder when you start out, but you know, I I don't get married to spots like some people do. And I, not that that's a bad thing. Like there's a lot of different ways to hunt. I think one thing you got to do is you got to find out how you like to hunt and then like build that, skill set because everybody likes to hunt different ways. Everybody does things a little bit different. And, you know, if you're, if you find success a way that you enjoy, then continue to hunt that way. You know, that might not be the same way as someone else. Like I, I'm, I'm in that way with elk hunting, uh, especially archery elk hunting. Like I like to call elk. I mean, that's one of the reasons I love guiding elk hunting is I'd rather almost be the caller than the shooter. In most instances, I, I like that interaction of like tricking elk. So when someone hunts with me, that's the way we hunt. It's like, I'm going to find elk that we can call in. I'm not like spending a lot of time putting elk to bed to stalk them. Like, I just don't even care about those elk. Like me, and you know, on, on a lot of hunts for me, like, I mean, I don't even know. If I was just like walking into a spot and a big six point bull stood up, I probably wouldn't shoot it. I was like, I didn't call that elk in. I don't want to shoot it. Like, that's just not the <laughs> way I, like, I know that sounds weird, but that's, that's an in, in extreme way of like, there's certain ways that I like to hunt elk during the rut and I'm going to hunt them that way. Cause it's fun for me. Um, you know, but I have friends that never call. They only stop because they're successful and that's the way that they want to hunt them. And that's cool too. Like, you know, everybody's got their own little ways that they want to do it. Not that I don't understand those techniques or haven't used those techniques or whatever, but you know, now I just, I, I enjoy the calling aspect so much that I choose to hunt that way, especially when I've got someone else with me. I'm like, okay, we're just going to call and we're going to find bulls that want to call back and we're going to call a bull in. And if you do that technique, you're going to get one that way. If we would have stalked all week, we would have got one that way too. But you know, you just kind of find what works for you and what you enjoy.
2: No, I definitely, I definitely get that. And I, there's something that's exciting about the calling and it's just like you said, it's like the, tr- it's like that chess and you're tricking the elk. And there's something cool about that. But I, I will fully admit and I've, I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before I, uh, I'm still working on that first elk. And so if I was jet boiling my coffee in the morning and an elk just happened to like creep its way out in the forest, 60 yards from me. And my bow is within reach. I would hammer the hell out of that thing. Yeah, for sure. Like, I mean, I'm just, am just on
0: an extreme side. There's, oh, yeah. you know, yeah. there's ways to like some people don't like glassing. Like if you're bad at glassing and you don't like glassing, develop tactics that you can be successful at without glassing. You know, it's like, there's, you know, hunt areas that you could, cause there's guys that are going to be glassing and they're going to be very successful doing it. And that's like, that's how I like to hunt. I like to glass and spot the animal and move in. Um, you know, but there's guys that don't like to do that. So the guys that don't like to do that, you know, focus on putting blinds on water. Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of tactics you can use and, you know, and to like honestly play to your strengths in some ways. Like if there's a certain type of tactic that you like to do, you know, build that, build that skill. I've got friends that um, like in New Zealand, that are really good. I would say they're like really good steel hunters. Uh, and that's something that I've, you know, over the years gotten a lot better at and been a lot uh, and been very successful with, but it, there's an art to it. Like, hunting the areas that you can't glass the areas where you like sneak up on the animal and they're in range and understanding where you find those animals in a sea of timber. And like, there's some cool, like it's, it's actually a really cool way to hunt too. Like there's a lot of different ways you can hunt. And what I think too is just build out all the, like once you've built out all those tactics, then you're going to be the most successful hunter you can be. You know, when you understand different ambush tactics, like, the ability to, to pick a blind and sit at water and have that patience and then the ability to go hunt thick timber and the ability to go do a lot of glassing. and then it, Once you've hit that, then you're, then you're really going to be successful because you have every tactic available and you know how to employ them like with precision and you're going to, you're really going to be successful in kind of any scenario. And I think that that comes with a lot of experience, but it also comes with kind of, you know, trying a lot of different stuff as well.
2: Well, I mean, I think it it just makes you such such a more versatile hunter in that, you know, OK, yeah, you may be focusing on this one thing, like with elk, for example, you know, somebody may be out there and they may want to call and call a bull in and this and that. But elk are they're wild animals. They do whatever the hell they want. And they just may not be talking. They may have been talking super early in the season or before the season, and maybe you're making a bunch of noise. You may found this area. You're like, shoot, I'm going to bomb in here. I am going to call and they're going to come tearing in. They're talking, whatever you may get in there. And for some one reason or the other, you, you may have committed seven, 10 miles deep and they may just decide to shut up. Once you get in there, being able to change those tactics and, and do more glassing or, or whatever that may be, or, or, switch up to some ambush hunting. If you, it's a hotter area and you know, you can sit water, it's going to make you a lot more successful than if all you can do is sit and call, but you know, it is good to also then focus on what you're good at. And if you are terrible at glassing, maybe start with the calling. (laughs) Yeah. That's
0: what I was trying to get at is like, you know, there's, everybody's got a little bit of a different strength and you know, you can, you, you can also pick areas based on those kind of strengths is what I was trying to say is like, mm-hmm. you know, you can, if you're, you know, if you really like to sit, but you decide you're going to go hunt an area that has like no possible way to do that. You're probably just going to be sitting in a random spot and waste a lot of time, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. uh, or But like, you, you, so you can kind of like, play to your strengths play and then like if that's not working change your tactics i mean yeah i i I still also like you know um hunting wallows is a fun way to hunt elk during the archery season like it's cool to watch that wallow behavior and actually like i think that um there's there's a real science to understanding wallows and how elk use them and when they're going to use them and which wallows are going to be active and like finding those wallows can be a science and i actually really enjoy explaining that tactic as well like that's something that that I enjoy. Um, I'm not real super patient at sitting, but if I'm sitting <laughs> over a productive wall like that, there's just something more exciting about that to me. Um, so yeah, there, there's, there's so many just different ways and things that you can do. Well,
2: and I think there's also something entertaining about an almost thousand pound animal with giant antlers rolling around like a small child in a puddle of mud. <laughs> like... yeah, exactly. <laughs>
1: To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash waypoint. That's mintmobile.com slash waypoint. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com/slash waypoint. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details.
2: Um, so uh some uh, some you kinda we uh, we were talking about earlier, just the trusting your hunches and, and confidence in your areas. That brings up actually one of the other questions that was asked, um, somebody asked, uh, generally like when you're glassing a new area, so, you know, maybe, maybe you weren't able to do as much scouting or or whatever it was, but you're in a fairly new area. You, you have a good hunch about it. You know, how do you build that enough of that confidence to, to really be like, well, do I spend a whole day here, half a day here? Like, you know, I know it's kind of a vague question, but there's only so many places you can be that last 30 to 60 minutes before dark. And that last 30 to 60 minutes, you know, kind of around sunrise, how do you decide like, okay, it's time to move on from this area. Like,
0: I mean, you have kind of have to know like a couple of things, whether, you know, like kind of the densities of the area, but, You know, know, I'm, like, fairly confident in my glassing skills where I sit down and if I look over something in the morning and don't see anything, there's probably not a lot there to see. Um, It also depends on, like, how much cover there is and how much available open there is. But sometimes I start to think, okay, well, you know, if if I'm looking in hillside, 10% of it's open, you know, what are the chances that what I'm looking for is going to come out in that? You kind of have to, like, make a scientific guess. You know, like, when you're you're counting – like populations for science. And it's like you take a small area and you tally up the number and then you extrapolate it over a larger area. So you kind of think of that. I kind of have that mentality when I'm looking at it like a hillside and I see, I can only see 10% of it. So if I see two deer out in that, okay, well maybe that is equating to more deer in this area. But if I'm not really seeing anything, then I can kind of go, yeah, I mean this, this area is not for me. I'll, I'll move on. Um, not that there aren't animals there, but you can maybe go find something easier. And once you start finding animals, then you can start honing in and saying, well, if there's a lot of animals here, there's something that they like. Maybe I can find other spots like this. Um, I kind of say that I have in some ways like happy feet. Like I like to cruise around. I like to move around a lot. I put in a lot of miles, not that I don't when I'm glass and glass hard or, you know, whatever, but, um, you know, I don't, I don't burn a lot of time, like in an area that doesn't seem very productive either. So I, I don't know. It's, it's just, that's one thing. Like I know people that'll go into a spot, they'll just, they'll hunt that the whole season. And that's cool too. Like they're probably really successful doing that. Um, just don't like you just, I've got like this don't assume philosophy where I don't assume that there's nothing there. And I don't assume that there is anything there. you got going to have to do both at the same time. Sounds weird, but it's like, you have to think that there is something there. So when you're looking, you're looking with the intent that you're going to see something. And you also have to assume that maybe you've looked as good as you can and you, there isn't anything to see. So move on. And, and if you do both those things, you'll probably be all right.
2: Be open, be open to both possibilities, but don't fully commit to either one. And,
0: um, or or fully commit to those possibilities. (laughs) (laughs) It's an oxymoron.
2: (laughs) Uh, There you go. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think it comes down to trusting, you know, developing those glassing skills and, and trusting them enough to be like, okay, well I went over this area going over it six more times yeah. Okay. There's a chance something may wander in in a few hours. And I, I could, if I continue staring at this spot, but you know, I guess, I, I guess it just, it means having confidence in your skills and and making that decision. Uh, if I went over an area, I went over it.
0: And that's, and
2: that's the hard
0: part too. Like when you're getting started or even like people that have been doing it a while, but maybe don't have those, like, you know, the skills for where they're looking and understanding like what they're looking for and where they're looking. Because, like one thing that I do enjoy about the guiding is I get to like hunt with a lot of people and see like how they hunt and and I would say like you know when I say guiding it doesn't mean that like the people I'm taking out have no experience a lot of them have been hunting their whole life but you know I it's like elk hunting can be very difficult if anybody that's tried it like it can be hard to get good at elk hunting and we'll sit down on a place that I glass and you know I've hunted a lot or whatever and I'll be like, how many, you know, very, I mean, I, over the years, I don't think that rarely anyone will ever spot something before me, unless it's like really close. And, you know, I don't really, you know, it was like glassing somewhere else and didn't see it, but you know, something that just like stands out in the if it's standing in the middle of the road, I probably won't see it first because I'm <laughs> looking off in the distance. But, um, you know, there's a lot of people that I've hunted with or whatever. And, and like from where I'm glassing, they won't see anything, but I'll end up picking out 300 elk. So it's like, okay, if they were here by themselves, they would think that there was nothing there when in fact there is. I honestly think like if you can find somebody that know like knows what they're doing and, and can go with them and just see like that kind of like proof where you go out with somebody that maybe has more experience. I know that can be difficult sometimes like to find or whatever, but and, and you're with sitting next to someone and they're spotting a lot of animals and you aren't spotting a lot then that kind of gives you a better gauge of how much time you should spend and whether there's animals when you're off on your own. You know, it's like a good barometer of, okay, last time I was here or last time I was glassing, you know, this person was spotting stuff. So that kind of is like a a self-check of like, yes, I'm seeing everything or no, I'm not. Um, Or those times where you're glassing a hillside and you go, oh, there's nothing here. And then 10 seconds later, you look up and there's 20 cows, like <laughs> giant cows, like cattle that you didn't see before. It's like self-check. You didn't see everything, dude. Um, like those are just good ways to gauge on like how, how observant you are and if you're like
2: actually seeing what might be there. And it's, that was a, that was a harsh realization for me. Um, cause I'd been, I'd been hunting for a, a little under a year at that point. And I went out on my first hunt with some other guys and they, I learned more about glassing my first day sitting with those guys, like looking for looking for pronghorn. than I did the <laughs> entire prior year of watching videos and reading and just doing it on my own. It can, it you, you kind of, you read all these articles and vi- watch videos and listen to podcasts and whatever. And it's all great content. You know, it's better than starting from zero. But the second you get out there, you know, you think you're doing it right. But you, you don't know for sure until you sit down with someone else that's, that's been doing it for years, knows exactly what they're looking for and can point things out to you. And it's a, it's a, a humbling realization <laughs> very quickly. You're like, and then all of a sudden you start thinking back on all those hunts you've been on where you didn't see a, a blessed thing. And you're like, hmm. yeah, no, there's a, probably a lot of bushes that held... A lot of animals that I completely miss. Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. But that's all part of it. You just got to get out there, get some experience. And, and once you start finding things, you know, you're doing something right, you know, and then just keep trying to replicate that. And it takes time. Like, I think that's one thing that people have a misconception of is, you know, you, you can read a lot, you can... Do these things, and I, and I, they absolutely help. Like um, for me, you know, like there's a lot of things that I had no clue about, like duck hunting. And I got myself into duck hunting when I was a kid, like by reading and, and understanding, and then going out, and and then you you use that as a foundation and a basis to build more skill. But um, it really doesn't come into like fruition until you like put it to use out in the field, and and that's where you kind of gain the skill. You know, you can gain the knowledge, but then you gain the skill out in the field. And that's
2: key. Well, and it's, you learn so much from making mistakes. I feel like more than anything else, I think it's when you make a mistake that you know for a fact is a mistake. I think that's when you learn the best lessons more so than more so than anything you can learn from, from reading or, or being successful. Um, and again, the only way you can make those mistakes is by being in the field. (laughs) Um, you can't, you can't make a mistake watching a YouTube video. I mean, I'm sure you some there's some people out there that could probably make a mistake watching a YouTube video, but generally you cannot make a, an educational mistake, uh, reading a book, listening to a podcast.
0: Oh, trust me. I've, I've, I've encountered a lots of people that have made mistakes watching youtube videos i had one like just the stuff people think they know is absolutely ridiculous <laughs> i had one guy i had one guy like sending me a message that i absolutely didn't know how to hunt because i was carrying a backpack around that had all my scent in it and i'm like <laughs> i was like dude you've never hunted in the backcountry i guarantee it because you got to carry a backpack. Like you just, you don't go 20 miles from your truck without a backpack towel. Like, I'm sorry. Like, it's just not how this game works. Like, good luck. Hope you don't die. Sweet. You know, it's just people, there's like stuff that people just do not know. And they are so excited to tell you what they don't know. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I mean, I've had a, maybe one or two people that have come on the podcast that I would look at them. I'd be like, okay, you you could go 20 miles deep without a backpack and be just fine for, for a few days. But yeah, I, am really curious how he thinks that's going to work. Uh, <laughs> going, going into the, uh, I don't know, going into the back without any, uh, any gear whatsoever. Yeah.
0: Or, or like, the uh, yeah, I don't know. Like, yeah you didn't even put on any, any scent lock stuff there's no wonder you didn't get that buck it's just like yeah dude i just hiked 9 miles into this spot like i've been out here for 4 days that's not going to help like <laughs> i'm going to have um, it's just it's a different game you know but i think it's funny how People are so willing to tell you like how to do something when they don't have experience doing it. That's the mistake people make
2: on YouTube. (laughs) (laughs) Scent control (laughs) is only going to do so much when you've been wearing the same two or three pairs of socks for seven days. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Not that, not that it
0: doesn't work in whatever, but you know, I just, I think that that kind of stuff's funny. It's like, yeah, I mean, and and yeah, I'm always open to suggestions for better ways to do things, but there's certain things that, you know, you kind of have
2: to do. (laughs) Spraying on scent control when you're at the truck is only going to do so much six, seven days later. Uh, (laughs) And it's, you know, it's funny. And, and, I get a lot of guys, you know, we laugh about this, uh, but I do get a lot of guys that listen to the podcast who uh I didn't really expect this when I started, but they are guys who may be back east and have only hunted Whitetail, and they'll be listening and they get inspired to come on their first elk hunt. And you know, you start with what you know, and you know, they're they're definitely you know, further along, say than I was when I started hunting and had never even sat in a tree stand before. Um, but there's still a lot of gaps in their knowledge and they may come out not realizing stuff like that. They who knows, they may come out in a big pair of insulated rubber boots because they don't want to leave their scent. That's not gonna be good. That's really gonna suck after the first two, three miles walking into the backcountry. And so I think those conversations are very important to have even though oftentimes they do seem silly and i think on on their end it is also very important though to understand where your gaps in the knowledge lie and cuz i can imma- i can only imagine the comments and messages that that you get get sent your way like it's just it's got to be, it's got to be pretty incredible. What, <laughs> what gets sent over.
0: Yeah. I mean, so, yeah. It, like I actually just don't, I haven't read a YouTube comment in probably 10 years. So th- those are all like old ones, you know, <laughs> but, um, I, I just thought that it was funny. <laughs> you can't do anything wrong on YouTube. Yeah. Well, no, <laughs> just kidding. Um, yeah, no, I think, but no, for the most part, I think now people are starting to understand, that there are differences. And and like, I, I understand those differences too. When I go to sit and do like a white tail hunt in Oklahoma, like I understand that I'm going to have to have some form of scent control. Like I'm going to have to do things different. You know, there's, there's different ways to do things and not that that like, yeah, I mean, that would work if you're going into a wallow and sitting and whatever, like, yeah, that's a great tactic to use and have and whatever there's, there's a place for certain things. But then it's like, you know, if I'm doing a, a backcountry hunt where I'm living out of my backpack and you're ridiculing a guy for wearing a backpack. That's why he's having trouble (laughs) killing. Now you don't understand what's going on, you know, like there's just fundamentals. Like it's a, it's a fundamental difference, but I think, um, yeah, you just have to understand that there's different ways of doing different things in different places.
2: Oh man. It it makes you wonder, it's like, did you just maybe like, did you actually watch the video or did you just see the the cover see me with the backpack and ask the question? <laughs> but yeah, I think that's it. <laughs> oh man. Um so I do want to throw a couple more of these questions at you really quick. Um so jumping around very spastically here. Um one of the, one of the questions that I got in was uh What changes do you see in a deer's behavior before and after they shed their velvet? And I'm sure a lot of that is, is kind of probably tied to the rut some as well. But, um, you know, most places I feel like that's what probably kind of the, the summer, summer moving into fall time period, other places a little bit later, but do you see differences in their, their feeding, their bedding, their overall routine from the time they, they shed their velvet to the time kind of they're in that hard horns.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, like a lot, you hear a lot like, uh, you know, like their, their antlers are sensitive while growing. And and I think that there is some truth to that. Um, you know, they tend to spend more time out in the open, um, before they shed their velvet, they're going to be like up in those more open areas. Now, if it's a thicker area and there's only open, like above timberline, that's actually where they're going to be. Like, it's pretty easy to kind of pinpoint where a lot of them will be, um, or they'll be out feeding in the open more often, as soon as they shed that velvet, uh, a couple of things happen. Like they, they kind of recluse back into thicker cover. Um, at least mule deer, it will even like white tails as well. will do this. Um, they, they kind of recluse back into thicker cover. And, um, I mean, it could be a, a combination of things. One could be not wanting to run their antlers through all this thick stuff, which does make sense. But also like uh, there's changes in the type of food sources that they need that point, you know, the grasses start to die earlier and and things start to change around that time too. So, um, but I noticed that they probably drop about a thousand feet in elevation for the most part, like depending on where they're at, it seems to be like a pretty consistent thing um, unless they're like a very unless they still have everything they need right there, but they generally like retreat to more thicker cover. And that's why like even, and then that kind of like progresses even more into that beginning of October. I think the hardest time to hunt meal deer is probably like the first part of October um, because before the rut and after they kind of out in those bachelor groups, they kind of, at that point, then they kind of like separate out. In, in September, they'll stay through, they'll shed their velvet, but they'll keep that bachelor mentality. So it's a little bit easier And then before the rut, then they split off and then they're like solo in the more thick cover. And that's actually the hardest time to find them. But you know, you can still find deer after they shed in their summer patterns, but at some point they're going to start to retreat because they're kind of making this transition from that summer pattern into like this solitary pattern into like fight mode for the rut. So you kind of have to like analyze where they're going to be in those different, those different times. And it's generally like, a little bit lower elevation maybe if they were in the Alpine and
1: um, like a little bit different type of terrain or cover. Boat Trader is America's largest boating marketplace with over 100,000 boats to choose from. We offer simple, comprehensive solutions for those looking to sell, find, and finance new or
2: used boats. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. So say somebody is... uh you know, fairly new to hunting they're they're trying to figure out what seasons they want to put in for, you know, maybe they're not as, they're not so much concerned about, uh, their tag draw success. Say, you know, they're resident, they've got a good chance at success. What kind of what season, what, what time would generally be best for them to apply to have the highest chance of success for, hunting mule deer. Like would it be when they're in those kind of bachelor herds? Would it be early season when they're still in velvet? Clearly not October as you mentioned. <laughs> would it be the rut? Like what would you what would you recommend to someone that that wants to kind of get their start into into hunting mule deer? Yeah. I
0: mean, well, if you can hunt the rut, that's the best. I mean, deer are dumb. they just like big deer make big mistakes. Then like they're out most of the day. Like it's, yeah, that's a great time to hunt. I'd say outside of the rut though, I think the best time is when they're in velvet. Um, but you know, there's, obviously like easy to get tags generally like general tags or whatever are based around seasons that it's the hardest to hunt the deer or like where success is going to be the lowest. Most like general tags happen in that like October season, easy to get tags are generally that October season. (laughs) Montana has like a general season through the rut, but um, you know, like early season is definitely really good. I think that that's probably the best time. For like seeing a lot of deer, it is like August time for anyone. Um, not a lot of not everywhere has seasons then. And then outside of August, I would say the next best time would be November. And then outside of those two times, I would say like um probably during uh late season in December, like a migration type area, or then like or September season, where they're kind of still bachelored up but not solitary. And then but You know, you can, you can still have really good hunting in October, um, when it's difficult because those big bucks might be by themselves. Like they're going to hold a tighter pattern. Once you find them, like you've, once you find a buck in that like October season, you probably are going to be able to get on them again. Um, which I think is like a, a huge advantage. So there's a lot, there's a lot of ways that you can exploit that like weakness that they make. then, um, they're by themselves. They make a lot more mistakes and they're, um, holding like a tighter area. So uh, there's, there's good parts to every
2: season really. And so this question, I I have a a feeling is going to be kind of super dependent on the area, but uh, you know, I'll, I'll kind of let you maybe give your answer. What should maybe a new hunter, someone that's getting their start in bow hunting mule deer, what should they expect kind of their effective yardage to be like uh, you know obviously you want to get in as close on the deer as possible and you want to be as effective out to as far as possible, but maybe a new hunter, um how far out should they really feel confident realistically before they're they're you know ready to go out hunting a mule deer?
0: Yeah, I mean that is super dependent. But I would say like if you practice a lot and you're a really good shot, like fifty yards probably it's kind of like that cap, but I would always say like, I, I think people get this weird thought in their head that like, you know, like, Oh, I can shoot 50 yards. You know, I could, I could kill a mule deer 50 yards. Yeah. But then they stalk in, they get to 50 yards and that's where they choose to shoot from. I think it's like, okay, if you can shoot 50 yards, make sure you get to 30, you yeah, know, cause it's like, get to 25. Because if you're already at 50, you're probably going to be able to go. 10 yards for it, go to 40. Go to, th- like, you know, once you get to 40, maybe go another five yards. You know, it's like, just do that because I think the majority, the mistake most people make now, like most guys that do it a lot, like even guys that are really good uh, hunt or hunt a lot or doing it their whole life, because now it's like you can go shoot your range at 80, 90 yards and make a good group and all this stuff. And the guys like creep into 70 yards and they're like, they get afraid to sneak further and like, I'll take a shot from here. And then they buff it. They would like things happen at that range. When you get into 20 yards, a lot less goes wrong. And I like, that's actually, I mean, I kind of fell into that really early before. Like, you know, I, I've been shooting bows, archery hunting my, for a very long time, but I noticed like I would get into like 60 yards, 50 yards and be like, okay, I'll wait here. And it's like, I stopped doing that. I just said, I'm going to get as close as possible. And man, a lot, fewer things went wrong. And there, there are those occasional times where, yeah, you blow it getting closer. But in the long run, I, I mean, honestly, like in the long run, my success is increased by just getting as close as possible. And I, I encourage everybody to do that. Not just because it's like more ethical or whatever. It's more successful. And yeah, you're going to blow a few, but not as many as you're going to mess up. At that
2: further range. So that's, that's the way I see it. So you'd say percentage wise, you're, you're going to blow a lot higher percentages of far shots than you are. You're then you're going to blow stocks, like getting in closer on stocks necessarily. It's what you'd say. Yeah, for sure.
0: Because I mean, there's, there's still things are, you're still within like that red zone of things going wrong at 50 yards or whatever, like the wind can shift. And when you're closer in, you're going to have a lot more opportunity to capitalize. It's like, you know, if all of a sudden the wind swirls and the buck stands up and is looking alert, and you're like 50 yards, you know, like, okay, dude, I, sh- I can shoot a dime at 50 yards. This thing's gone. And you draw back and shoot, that deer's just going to duck that arrow and be gone. Now you might fully miss him or you might hit him in the back. And neither of those are good, like good outcomes. Whereas if you're at 30 yards, you know, you might have an actual chance of killing that deer. So there's just like, you know, it's like that, that gap makes a big difference as far as things happening or, you know, also like there's just less margin of error. There's a lot less things that can go wrong at those closer distances. I, you're just a lot more successful at sealing the deal the closer you get, especially when it comes to the shot. Not that you aren't a good shot, not that you can't make further shots, but just the way the animal reacts, the way that everything, you know, at 20 yards of deer jumps the string, you have probably already killed it by the time it finishes jumping the string. At 40 yards you know, as 10, every 10 yards, that chance goes down and down and down, you know, until you get far enough out that it jumps, the string comes back up in your
2: head, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Oh man. Um, so one thing I always kind of like to, to wind down with is, you know, say, uh, who knows, say, say you're just out one day, somebody knows your guide knows your hunter, whatever that is. And, they come to you and they're like, Hey man, you know, I know you're into all this hunting stuff and that's, it's really cool. I've always wanted to try it. He's like, but I don't know, man, like I don't have any friends that do it. I grew up in the city. eh, There's a lot to learn and all this, all this stuff's like, just way too intimidating for me. I don't know if I can do this. What encouragement or kind of words of wisdom would you give someone, uh, kind of in that situation?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think generally what I, I, you know, like I encourage them to to definitely give it a try. There are things that are difficult about it, but it's not impossible. You know, I mean, really like, I mean, I even just had somebody ask me the other day and it's like, I was thinking about hunting. Like what, what do I do? You know, get your hunter safety, take those, take those steps to where you can actually get a license and then just kind of like, do, it's just like anything, you know, get some, get some advice, whether it's from someone you like, you end up finding podcasts, whatever, go out and give it a try. I mean, I, I honestly think like the best way to start is a small game because you can like be successful. You can, you can learn a lot of things, you can do a lot of things and it's not is like um, intimidating to start out. And I think that's like great, like a great way to start out. You know, I think like, um, it's just like anything, you know, you can start, start small and grow big. Cause you're going to gain skills doing that. You can do that. Like it's a longer season. There's more opportunity, more places to go. It's easier. Like people are more willing to share those kind of spots than they are maybe big game spots because there's a lot more time investment in other things. And it's a great way to get out. And while you're out there thinking about other things you might be able to do, because while you're hunting, you know, there's so many times where I've been hunting chucker and found or quail and like, Oh, this is a cool deer spot. Maybe I'd come back here you know, like thinking about the way that I started hunting, I started hunting small game first. So I think that that's like a great avenue to get into it. And then I also like encourage people to kind of maybe do like, if it's something they want to do, you know, maybe try to find some kind of mentor and the best way to do that's through like conservation organizations, you know, it's like go like in Nevada, we've got like a big horn, like Nevada bighorns unlimited where they do guzzler builds all the time. Go, go get on one of those, like get your hands dirty with some people that, Hunt and they'll be like, oh, you know, what types you put in for it. And you'll be like, I've never hunted. And I'd say it, at some point, someone's going to be like, oh, really? But you're out here helping. Yeah, I really it's something I want to. I'm in, in, trying to get into like go to those events and and start meeting people that are in that space. You know, it's not. I mean, it's hard to meet new people, but when you kind of get your hands dirty with them and go through those experiences of like helping out, like it's a lot. It's a lot easier to build relationships with people that are willing to help you that way. I think.
2: now I think that's. That's super critical. People get, I don't know, people get really excited when somebody comes in, just does not have any background in all of that, but they're willing to, you know, willing to throw down with everyone else. Like I just, I've seen that time and time again. You know, when I first started, you know, I'd, I'd sign up to go on a, just a hike with a group of hunters, even though I'd never been out. Like, Shoot I flew out of you know I found some cheap spirit airlines tickets, and I flew out of state tons of times to just go to events and uh, conservation events and different different things and you know find your local ones and find uh find ones that you can just make your way to and it's people people love i mean i don't I don't know a single hunter that doesn't want to sit and tell hunting stories and talk to someone you know it help teach someone that knows less than them. I mean, it, it's a nice ego boost for them sometimes, you know, feeling like they get to share their wealth of knowledge and, you know, every, I don't, I know very few hunters that don't want to grow the hunting community. So it's, it's a fantastic opportunity to get out and meet people. Yeah, definitely. Well, man, thank you so much for taking the time. If folks wanted to uh, follow along with everything online, where can they find you?
0: Yeah, Um, I do mostly everything on Instagram. You can find me at Remy Warren. Um, you can also check out my podcast where I give a bunch of cool tips called Cutting the Distance Podcast, um, pretty much anywhere podcasts are found. And yeah, I mean, those, and then, you know, some YouTube stuff, Solo Hunter on YouTube um, or Remy Warren at YouTube. I'm going to start doing more uh, how to tips and tactics. Uh, yeah, that's, that's pretty much everywhere.
2: Awesome, man. Well, again, I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks. Alright y'all, that'll do it for this episode of The Wild Initiative. Make sure to check out the show notes page at thewildinitiative.com. Get links to everything we talked about in today's episode. That'll do it for this week. Looking forward to next time. But until then, I hope this inspired you to get involved, get outdoors, and plan your initiative for the wild. Thank you for listening to The Wild Initiative. Please take a moment to leave a rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher and head on over to thewildinitiative.com. To get show notes, check out the blog, gear discounts, other podcasts from
1: The Wild Initiative family, and more.